This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about homelessness and the uniquely American origins of our housing crisis. Bryce Covert will report. Also, one of the defining features of Trump's politics has been the way he's appealed to hatred and fear of refugees and immigrants. We'll talk about refugee lives and refugee writers with Viet Nguyen. He's the author of the unforgettable novel, The Sympathizer, which won the Pulitzer Prize. He's also the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and he's a refugee himself, arriving from Vietnam with his family when he was four years old in 1975. We'll speak with him later in the show. But first... Seymour Hirsch is one of our heroes. In 1970, he won a Pulitzer Prize for his expose of the My Lai Massacre. He was a 33-year-old freelancer at the time. Since then, he's won pretty much every other award. He's worked as a staff writer for the New York Times and the New Yorker, where he wrote during the Iraq War. He's also written a dozen books. The new one is Reporter, a Memoir. Cy Hirsch, welcome to the program. Glad to be here. Well, let me list some of the big stories of yours featured in this book. Briefly, Abu Ghraib, Watergate, CIA surveillance of the anti-war movement in the Nixon years, the crimes of Henry Kissinger and the CIA in Chile and other places, and of course, the first and most unforgettable, Mi Lai. For me, the most powerful of your My Lai stories was one of the follow-ups of the original revelations that American soldiers killed unarmed Vietnamese civilians. Uh, 504 is the Vietnamese count. The U.S. Army now says 347. You learned that a lot of the shooting had been done by a soldier named Paul Meadlow with your characteristic doggedness, you found Meadlow's mother in a small town near Terre Haute, Indiana. What happened when you met her? Well, you, you have to understand, this is 
these kids that were in this unit, they were mostly underclass, a larger percentage of African Americans than in America generally, same for Hispanics. And among the whites, most of them were rural and not very well educated. Paul Meadlow was from, the town was called New Goshen. It was a farming community um, um, 20 or 30 miles outside of Terre Haute, Indiana, which is, you know, <laughs> I don't know, from uh, 100 miles from Indianapolis, well, you know, wherever it is. I learned about the kid. I learned he'd done a lot of shooting. I learned that the day after he'd done a lot of shooting, he lost a leg. He stepped on a landmine in Vietnam. They were, on, they were just patrolling like it was another day, the day after they murdered 500 people. And so I call up before I'm coming. I was, I think, in Salt Lake, and I, I found the number that looked like the right number, and I called. I said, I think I'm looking for your son, Paul. How is he? And whatever she said, well, what do you want to know? And I said, well, how's his leg? She said, well, he's doing fine. So I knew I had the right person. Said I was a reporter. Went to see her. Got there. It took all day. Got there late the next day. I don't know how in the hell I ever found New Goshen, let alone the house. She comes out. I'm, I tell her I'm the journalist. I introduced myself and said, I'm the guy that called last night. Uh, where's your son? Is he here? And she said he lives, there's a separate house. This is all wooden shack. She said he lives there with his wife. And I said, um, is it okay to talk to him? She said, well, you'll have to ask him. I, you know, I, I can't speak for him. And then she looked and she said to me, you know, she said, I gave them a good boy and they sent me back a murderer. Wow. And I got to tell you, I mean, you, you don't get those lines very often, like, like never. I just like froze. Um, what could you say? So I went in, and I went into his place, and for some reason, what I did, I didn't know him. He was a big boy. And I said, um, he, he knew I was coming. He said, I, I knew you were going to come today. My mom told me. I said, I want to talk about what happened. He said, well, I don't know. I said, but before they do, do that, I said, do me a favor. Take off your shoe. I want to see what they did to you, what your new leg looked like. And he was happy to do it. He took off his shoe and he showed me the prosthetic leg, took it off. Took a month, I later learned five months in a hospital to recover from that uh, terrible wound to his leg. I said, so tell me what happened. And he began to say, I was, uh, he began to tell the story of just shooting. He put seven, seven or eight clips of 17 bullets and shot people in a ditch again and again and again. And uh, Callie kept on saying, do it. Most of the other boys equally as uneducated the other boys did not shoot uh, very few of the african-american guys the black guys did most of them just stayed away uh, and same with the hispanics uh, it was a white boy shoot let's go back to the beginning of your story we're interested in how you got started were you the kind of kid in high school who edited the school newspaper and constantly got in trouble with the principal over the stuff you wrote no no, I never had anything to do with journalism. My, 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 um, my father was uh, an Eastern Europe from uh, uh, Lithuania. My mother was Eastern Europe from Poland. They weren't very much educated. They were sort of off the screen. I, was, I have a twin brother and two older sisters that were twins. I did a lot of sports. It was a perfectly ordinary, if lower middle class life. There was always enough food to eat. My mother baked a lot. She communi- communicated to my brother and me by, by um, food. My father just didn't communicate. He was sort of, you know, uh, I think really unhappy at where he was in life. He was only in the 40s. He died at 49 of cancer. He smoked three or four packs of Lucky Strikes a day. And so I, I didn't have any intellectual role models, except that when I was about 12 or 13, I joined the Book of the Month Club. 
<laughs> and I paid, I think, either 99 or a dollar a month. And I always picked the nonfiction, I mean, monthly book. And half the time it was J. Edgar Hoover telling us about communism or somebody else like that. <laughs> but the other half was stuff that I got into, you know, uh, the Habsburg monarchy, I remember, the Catholic Church, uh, uh, history about uh, the China. You know, they would get these goofy things every, month, every other month. And so I, I read a lot as a kid. Our school was, I was always good in school. In your book, you write about your first job as a journalist at the City News Bureau in Chicago. One of the big lessons you learned there as a cub reporter came when you were a, a police reporter, and a call came in that a cop had shot and killed a suspect trying to escape. You rushed to the scene. What did you learn, and what story did you write? If you remember, there's a famous play by Ben Hick called uh, Front Page. Yeah. You know, uh, that's the city news. City news was full of aggressive guys, young guys wanting to get hired by one of the Chicago papers or somewhere else who were going to spend a year covering police and fires and uh, being the first people on the scene for the four dailies. And here I am covering the Chicago police midnight to eight. Not much goes on. Part of the time, <laughs> the cops would bring us some dope they confiscated, some Mary Jane, we called it. We smoke a joint and watch uh, some of the SAG films they caught. Cops were pretty nice. I got along with the cops. And so I learned a lot. We had the police radio. We could listen to it in, in the station. Two cops called in and said they have a suspect, and he tried to get away, and they shot him, and we're coming in to do a report. So they were coming to the main downtown police station. Being energetic, I, instead of waiting for them, the report, I ran down to the basement of the police station just to get the cops when they came in. And I, I happened to get there just as the squad car pulled in, and two beefy, obviously Irish, red-faced cops overweight got out and one of their buddies said so you had a guy try to escape on you he said no one of them said to his buddy he said no I, you know i told the n- get out of here beat it and i shot him you know and i plugged him when he was going down an alley and i heard it you know wow wow i immediately disappeared from view i didn't want the cop to know i saw i heard that because this is chicago 1960 you did not mess around with the cops except you do it procedurally you don't stick your nose out and so I, what I did is I called my editors. I had only been at the City News about four months. I called the, the day-night editor, whatever it was, and he said, do nothing. I said, what are you talking about? The guy said he shot him in the back. And my editor said, it's your word against the cops. You know, if you distinct impression I was left with is not only would you not be able to confirm the story, you, you would be in big trouble for telling the story. Hmm. So I waited a couple of days until the, uh, I went in and got the, the coroner's report, sort of casually looked at a bunch of them, and sure enough, there were three holes in his back. And so then I called back, and I said, there's some evidence. This is really important. And the editor said to me, and you have to remember, I've only been there for about four, six months. The editor said to me, you don't understand what you're doing. Forget about it. It's not going to happen. You're not going to write that story. We're never going to handle it. I felt very depressed because it was self-censorship. We had censored a good story. My editor censored it. I was not powerful enough or smart enough to figure out a way to get around it. But I remember feeling this is, this is not a perfect business. And you know what? I'm also not perfect because I went along with it. Well, let's talk about the world right now. A lot of people say we are now in a new golden age of investigative journalism. Not since the glory days of Watergate has there been so much to do and so many talented people doing it. I wonder if you agree. Nope, not at all. Uh, I, I didn't support for Trump. I, I don't support his views. 
I see him as the orange man, but I also see him, you know, I also understand he was elected by, uh, by a percentage of the people in the country. Maybe she got more votes, but he was elected. He won the election. He's president. But on the other hand, there's two new elements in the game. One is cable news, in which you have panel after panel and night after night. And, you know, the panels of journalists and reporters, let's talk about the new, new Trump this. And the first two words you hear 90% of the time from the panelists are the most lethal words, I think, in the, in the language today, I think. I don't care what somebody thinks. I want to know what they know. And so you have this, net, this layer of instant gratification, instant news. And the White House, no matter how much Trump may lie, the, the White House can release a, a one-page document alleging something around the world. And CNN and, uh, and MSNBC and Fox will have Crytron, I think. What do they call it? Crytons? Things that go across the bottom of the page. Yeah. Breaking news. White House says 42 killed in Yemen raid. You know, nothing is checked. Everything's taking on face value. It cheapens the whole product. And so what you have now, this great division. We've always had a division in this country. What's new? So you have this incessant race to produce stories. You, there's, there's no checking. It's just bam. It's just bam, bam, bam. Um, and since uh, Trump, whether you like him or don't like him, is catnip for the cable ratings and catnip for the number of subscribers that the um, New York Times tells us every three months they get, mostly online, because they're doing anti-Trump left, right, and center. So you get this complete dichotomy in the press corps. I can think I don't like Trump, and he scares the hell out of me. But I can also think in some weird way, you can't underestimate him. He's a, he's a circuit breaker. He'll say yes to going to North Korea without knowing a goddamn thing about it because that's his style. And you can criticize him all you want for it, but the fact of the matter is he's going to go. And, you know, the, whatever they need to do gets filled in later. And if he, if he on a weekend, the tension is flagging, he'll say, I'm not going to go and write a letter about it and then dominate news for three more, four more days. I happen to believe he's being he's playing the press a hell of a lot more than the press wants to think. But that's just what I believe. That's what I think. It doesn't mean anything. What are the big stories that you think need to be written right now? Are they about the Trump organization's finances or are they about something completely different? Well, I think some of the premises of our time, post-election, post-Hillary defeat, need to be analyzed. You know, I do most of my stuff as, as military and intelligence and that kind of stuff. I've been doing it for 50 years. And any time I see the American government all coming out rushing to a judgment, as they did after uh, the election, before, before he was inaugurated, Trump, uh, coming out with what they call their high-confident assessments that uh, the Russians hacked into the DNC uh, John Podosa's emails, and that turned the election. High confidence in that judgment. And um, I also saw there were assessments made of high confidence for, for two years after 9-11 after that the Iraqis have WMD. Even after it was clear they didn't, they were still putting out assessments. High confidence means to me, we don't have a clue. We yeah. don't know. And this doesn't mean that I'm not aware that Trump has put together the worst cabinet, that he doesn't read, that he's very dangerous. Um, but I, I tell you, then, uh, I also think he's going to pull troops out. He's very mercantile. He's going to pull troops out of, out, of, out of South Korea if they get a deal. And the whole thing about the Korea North and South is, 
as some of your audience surely knows, there's been three or four major disarmament meetings between the two of them without, without American involvement. And they've always broken down because the South always had, usually because of the South was aggressive and what it wanted from the North, more than the North. In this case, the South has new leadership. They're very open about it. They're keeping it going. I think they're going to get a deal. I think Trump will get a lot of attention for it without having done that much for it. I think Trump can also, anytime he wants, go to Russia and meet with Putin, and he probably will. Probably call him best buddy. I'm not saying back off on it, but I'm just saying, come on, Giuliani. How many times are you going to hear the story? They, so they went five months ago and said the guy can pardon himself. He can't pardon himself. <laughs> and I don't see Mueller doing You know, I tell you, meanwhile, since this stuff's gone on, he's gone up seven, eight points in the ratings. He's higher than he ever was, 47 48%. <laughs> i got to tell you, I think he's crazy like a fox. I think we're all misreading him. Seymour Hirsch, his new book is called Reporter, a Memoir. Sai, thanks for talking with us today. Hey, it was fun. Now it's time to talk about homelessness in America. Nearly half of all renters can't afford rent, and over half a million Americans are homeless on any given night. How did we get here? For that, we turn to Bryce Covert. She's a contributing writer at The Nation, where she wrote the cover story for the new issue. She's also a contributing op-ed writer at The New York Times, and her work has also appeared in The Washington Post, New York Magazine, Slate, and other places. Bryce Covert, welcome back. Thanks for having me back. Well, we record our show in L.A., which has a huge homeless population. The last count just a couple of weeks ago was 53,000 people homeless in L.A. County. 39,000 people are are listed as, quote, unsheltered. That means living on the streets, in tents, or maybe in cars. Why is this? Well, I think really the short answer for both Los Angeles and the country as a whole is that there just are not enough homes available that are afforded, affordable for the people who are struggling the most to pay rent. Los Angeles is in many ways the extreme example of what's going on across the country. Rents have gone extremely high there at the same time that there is just a real dearth of apartments that are affordable for the lowest income residents. It's second only to Las Vegas and tied with Orlando, Florida for having the fewest available homes. Um, Again, this is a problem across the country. There is no place in this country where there are enough homes to meet the need of low income families who are struggling to pay rent. But there's a lot of things going on in Los Angeles that has hampered and constrained the construction of public, both public housing and just affordable units generally. And so, you know, Skid Row has become sort of notorious, but there are a lot of people who live in tents in that, those couple of blocks called Skid Row, and that's really the, the only place that they can go to sleep at night. Okay, so... The question, why are so many people homeless, has a simple answer. There's a shortage of affordable housing, but that raises the question, why is that? How did we get to this place where there isn't enough housing for low-income people? This, too, has sort of a short answer. The, the answer really is that the government decided to stop 
investing money in public housing and affordable housing in about in the 70s and the 80s. In 1960, only about a quarter of the country's renters spent more than what's considered affordable on rent, and there was actually a surplus of affordable homes for the lowest income Americans, a 7.2 million unit surplus around the same time. Today, there's a deficit. Today, about half the country is paying more than they should be in rent. And you can trace that back to what happened politically in the 70s and 80s. In the 70s, Nixon came in and he put out a moratorium on spending on federally subsidized housing programs. And then Reagan came in afterward, and instead of just keeping things at a standstill, he took the axe to the funding budget and just completely decimated it. It was cut by more than half under his tenure, falling from $83.6 billion in 1976 to less than $40 billion in 1982. And the truth of the matter is, is that that really hasn't changed since. We've never really recovered that kind of funding. This is true under both Republican and Democratic presidents alike. We just don't put the resources toward it that we used to. And what that means is instead we're hoping that the private market is going to somehow be able to step in and fill the need of building um, and making available homes that are affordable to the lowest income people. And the math just doesn't work out there. Um, Even if they wanted to, the costs are too high to build these kind of units and then rent them out for the kinds of prices that people can actually afford to pay. So we have a growing crisis where there's a a large number of people who have nowhere to go where they're paying a sustainable amount of rent. And so they either end up homeless or they end up doubled up, many families in one unit, or they end up making huge sacrifices to pay way more than they should be paying in rent just so they have a roof over their heads. So you say this began with Nixon in the 70s. Before that, was there ever a a good time, a golden age of uh, public housing? Unfortunately, I would say in this country, there wasn't really. There were some fits and starts towards trying to address this question of affordable, available housing for all. But it never really took off here the way it did a little bit more in some European countries. There was a glimmer of it during the New Deal. The Public Works Administration um, built, uh, had, you know, out-of-work people get jobs through these New Deal programs, and one of the programs was to build homes that not only house the poor, but also the middle class, and they were pretty decent. Um, They looked nice. They had nice facilities. They had laundry. They had playgrounds. Some had libraries. They were pretty popular, but there weren't a lot of them. It wasn't really meant to be a national housing policy. It was more of an unemployment-fixing policy. So people wanted to expand that and make that our housing policy um, in the 1930s. And there was a bill that eventually became the Housing Act of 1937 that really tried to do that. Originally, it would have provided public housing for both the poor and the middle class. The federal government would have had a lot of say over where housing got built and how it got built. It was supposed to be high quality, you know, enough money poured into it that it was good housing. But the real estate industry did not want a competitor in the federal government. It saw these PWA houses and got nervous that people would want to live in those instead of the private market houses. And so the the lobby really 
whittled down the Housing Act of 1937 to the point that it was only allowed to serve the poor. The middle class was basically left out. Um, and it also succeeded in making sure there were low-cost ceilings so that the housing was never really going to be of very good quality. And the housing that came out of that is more of what we think of when we think of public housing in this country today. Um, you know, housing that is in far-flung places because communities are allowed to opt out and just not build it if they don't want to. Um, it's not very high quality usually, and it's often allowed to deteriorate, and it's really only available to the poorest. So it's become stigmatized and seen as this, you know, handout or place of last resort instead of something that could be serving a pretty wide swath of the country. Republicans have always been against public housing from the 30s through the 70s down to the present. Housing for poor people doesn't make money for landlords. So why do Republicans care about this so much? I think they see this as a question of the private market versus government intrusion. Um, the the real estate industry still is very powerful and would like to be left alone and would like to be the arbiter of where people live and what they're paying and how good of quality it is and not have to compete with the federal government. That's still true today as it was back then, and I think Republicans are – interested in defending that private market solution and not interested in spending money on something that would serve the poor um, or even serve the poor in the middle class and become a quote-unquote entitlement. You know, if, this, if public housing were actually of higher quality and available to a bigger slice of the population than just the very, very poor, I think it might change the way people see housing. It wouldn't be seen as this commodity that's bought and sold on the private market. It might be seen as a right. Uh, that's, I think, an antithetical to a lot of Republicans' worldview. To return to the homeless in Los Angeles, in the November 2016 election two years ago, L.A. voters approved a funding proposition, Prop HHH. Three-quarters of L.A. voters approved it. This increased property taxes to raise $1.2 billion to build 10,000 units of permanent supportive housing. That was a great day. It showed that people, at least in Los Angeles, really do care about the homeless and are willing to pay more taxes to house them. Is that the kind of solution that you think will work in America today? I think it's at least the kind of attitude that we need to see more of. And it is, you know, as much as Los Angeles can be held up as an example of the problem, I think politically speaking, it can also right now be held up as part of where the winds are changing. But it's also in many ways a drop in the bucket compared to the need. Raising property taxes in cities or even states is uh, a one way to start working against this long-standing problem. And it's, again, it's commendable that voters in Los Angeles, and there have been voters in other cities who have said that they want to do something like that. But a local community really is never going to be able to raise enough taxes on its own to reverse this problem and really address this problem. It, it will take the federal government. It's the federal government that turned its back on this issue and cause this crisis, and it's the federal government that's going to need to step in and put the money back in, and also to 
coordinate a vision of housing policy in this country. You know, the people I talked to for this article, the, the experts on housing, all basically agreed we don't really have a housing policy in this country. We have a private market that mostly does what it wants, and then we have some very paltry funding for public housing and vouchers and things like that, and then some local communities try to do more, but we are not really coordinated. There's no vision for how do we make sure that in one of the richest countries in the world, every citizen has somewhere to sleep at night. And where is the political initiative coming from on this? Is the uh, Bernie wing of the Democratic Party doing something, doing enough about the housing issue? I'm sure that if you asked Bernie Sanders, I would not be surprised if he said that he would support spending more money on housing, on public housing in this country. But it's not something I hear him talking about very much. And it's frankly just not something I hear any national Democrats talking much about, particularly in a comprehensive way. You know, some will talk about homelessness on its own, for example. Some might talk about home ownership. But the idea of having a national right to housing, a, a federal initiative to give everyone a home who needs one, is really not on the political agenda. There are definitely groups who are starting to, grassroots groups who are starting to organize around that question and push towards that answer. Um, But I don't think we have a national movement, and I really don't think we have a national leader on it yet. And I'd be really excited to see someone take up that mantle. Bryce Covert, she wrote the cover story for the new issue of The Nation on homelessness in America. Thank you, Bryce. Thanks so much. Well, one of the defining features of Trump's politics, it's no secret, has been the way he's appealed to hatred and fear of refugees and immigrants. Now, refugee writers and refugee lives are featured in a new book. It's called The Displaced, and it's edited by Viet Nguyen. He's the author of three books, including the unforgettable novel The Sympathizer. It won the Pulitzer Prize. He's the recipient of a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant, and he was selected as a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, along with Ta-Nehisi Coates, Sonia Sotomayor, and Barack Obama. He also teaches at USC, where he's Arnold Chair of English Complet and American Studies and Ethnicity. Last time we talked to him here, it was about the sympathizer. Viet Nguyen, welcome back. Thanks for having me back, John. And congratulations on the Academy appointment. Isn't that weird? <laughs> strange to be strange to have my name mentioned in the company of those other names that you. That you well, al- alphabetical order puts you right next to Obama. It, it's a great thing. Well, let's see if the seating chart works out the same way. <laughs> <laughs> well, you insist on being called a refugee and not an immigrant. Why is that? The immigrant idea in America is very strong. Right? We, we call ourselves a nation of immigrants, and it's a part of our mythology that immigrants come here and they achieve the American dream. And I think even at this moment in history where the xenophobic feelings in American society that have always been there are reaching another peak, even those people who don't like immigrants nevertheless believe 
in that immigrant idea. Like, of course, immigrants would want to come to the United States because we're awesome. But refugees (laughs) are different. Refugees are unwanted where they come from. They're unwanted where they go to. They're a different legal category. They're a different category of feeling in terms of how the refugees experience themselves. And they're a much more despised category even than immigrants for so many people in the United States. So it's very easy for someone like me to pass himself off as an immigrant, to pretend to be an immigrant, but I feel like I'm doing a disservice. I feel like I'm not speaking the truth, and I feel that it's necessary for people like me who have benefited from being a refugee uh, to acknowledge our existence as such and to advocate for the refugees today. Well, I looked up some of the statistics on refugees today uh, and about Trump's current policy. Last September, Trump slashed the cap on refugees admitted to the United States. <clears throat> Obama, under Obama, it had, the target was 110,000. Uh, Trump officially slashed that to 45,000, but this year it looks like he only 22,000 will be resettled, which is about a fifth of what Obama's target was. If we look at Syrian refugees admitted to the United States, uh, 2016, Obama around 15,000, 2017 around 3,000, and thus far in 2018, 11, a total of 11. You became a refugee in 1975. You were four years old. What's the story there? How did that happen? Well, we, my parents were fleeing from the Vietnam War, and they were obviously from the southern side, so they were among the losing side. And so along with 130,000 other Vietnamese people who were afraid of communism, they decided to flee the country, and they were among the lucky ones who managed to get out because I think the CIA was estimating there was about a million South Vietnamese people who had some kind of affiliation with the United States who really wanted to leave and couldn't. So this 130,000 group of uh, population ended up in the United States in one of four refugee camps, and my parents and I ended up in Fort Indian Town Gap in Pennsylvania. And that's where my memories begin, uh, in a refugee camp, and being taken away from my parents, because in order to leave one of these camps, you had to have a sponsor. Well, one sponsor took my parents, one sponsor took my 10-year-old brother, and one sponsor took four-year-old me, which, when you're four years old, it's very traumatic to be separated from your parents. Uh, and I speak now as a father of a four-year-old son, and, and, and looking at him, I see myself, and, and I just imagine how painful it would, it would have, yes, that, that experience yes. would have been for me and for my parents. So that's where memory begins with this narrative, and that's why I feel, you know, for me, I've never forgotten being a refugee because of that trauma. You write in the introduction to The Displaced, I do not remember many things, and for all those things I do not remember, I am grateful, close quote. Why is that? If you do any reading into refugee experiences, what you discover is that people who are refugees almost uniformly have (laughs) suffered terribly in trying to escape the country they were fleeing from and in trying to get to the countries that they want to go to. And in the case of just this South Vietnamese population that we're talking about, uh, the refugee experience was horrendous. You know, many, many, many lives were lost. Many terrible things happened to the people who were trying to flee. And at four years old, I didn't remember any of that kind of stuff. My my brother, who is 10, you know, remembers dead paratroopers hanging from the trees on the mountain route 
that we were uh, escaping our home city from where we were walking downhill about 180 kilometers trying to make it to a port town to get a boat to Saigon. And that mountain route from the research that I've done as an adult was clogged with tens of thousands of civilians and all their vehicles and property and tens of thousands of South Vietnamese soldiers fleeing as well. It was a nightmare. So no one who's been to that experience has ever forgotten it. And those are traumatic, terrible things to have witnessed. So that's why I'm thankful that I don't actually remember these things myself, and I have the luxury of reconstructing them from other people's memories. You say that refugees like you and your family in America today are both invisible and hyper-visible. Please explain what you mean. Well, by that I mean we share a situation that is completely common for just about any minority or marginalized population in this country or in any other country. We're invisible in the sense that people, the rest of America, doesn't know about our existence and doesn't care to know about our existence. So when my book started to come out, for example, The Sympathizer, I've had many people come up to me and say, well, we were there uh, in 1975 or the 1970s when the Vietnamese refugees started coming to town, and we knew nothing about them, and we never cared to ask. We were invisible, but we become hyper-visible when we become a problem, when we become gangsters or when we become visible as welfare cheats and things like that. But there's no in-between. We're not allowed the luxury of just being normal, just being visible, like everybody else in, in majority American society. And so we fluctuate then between never being seen and only being seen as a problem. You have a wonderful sentence about being uh, a, a writer about refugees. I keep my tattered memories of being a refugee close to me. Why is that? I think it's easy for people who have undergone some kind of terrible loss or some kind of terrible experience to forget about these things, although it's not easy. It's, it's desirable for them to do so. So I've actually met quite a few refugees who don't acknowledge that they are refugees. They just call themselves immigrants because, again, it's easier to call yourself an immigrant. If you call yourself an immigrant here, uh, you fit people, – people will, will want to hear your heartwarming story about getting to this country and succeeding. Yes. If you say you're a refugee, that's the quickest way to kill a cocktail party conversation <laughs> because people can't relate to that. So that's why I keep those tattered memories close to me because, number one, it's important to, to do this work of reminding uh, other refugees and other Americans that we exist. But number two, it makes me empathetic. It makes me feel for these new refugees and what they're going through. And that's an important thing for me as a writer and a human being to do, because I know that there are some former refugees out there who are saying, you know what, we're the good refugees. We deserve to be here. All these new people from the Middle East or Syria, for example, they're the bad refugees. They're different. We've got to close the door on these people. And I think that's fundamentally wrong. Kind of the purpose of a book like The Displaced is to help us imagine the lives of refugees but you say in your introduction that this imagining can lead us to deceive ourselves. What do you mean there? Well, I think that this is a, part of the problem with literature. You know, literature's strength is built on, on empathy, um, both the empathy of authors and the empathy of readers. We want to get to know other characters, other people from, from different places. And this is a very powerful thing. But it's also deceptive because it's a luxury. I think we, we want to know about terrible situation X and, and sympathetic person Y, and we've read their story, and, and our, our hearts are warmed, and, and our, our emotions are moved. But what happens if we don't do anything? 
What happens if we just put down that book and pick up another book? What happens if we don't donate money, if we don't get involved in an aid organization? What happens if we don't call our elected officials? What happens if we don't march in the streets? What happens if we don't take action? And I think that's the danger of of literature, that it can, as much as it awakens our feelings, it can also lull us into a sense of complacency that we've already done something simply by reading about someone's situation. And I should uh, add here that the publisher of The Displaced, Abrams, is donating 10% of the cover price to the International Rescue Committee, one of the one or two leading nonprofits in the world that's been providing humanitarian relief to refugees since World War II. I know you're a supporter of the IRC, and they're an important part of this book. No, absolutely. I think that there are important organizations like the IRC that are carrying out this work. They've been doing it for a long time. You know, there there are, uh, by UN estimates, uh, 22.5 million uh, refugees in the world right now, um, and that is out of a population of 66.5 million uh, displaced people, as the UN calls them. Uh, so if you add all these people up together, they're a very large country. That'd be a country that's larger than France. Yeah. So there's there's pressing need for these types of organizations and and the work that they do. One last thing I wanted to ask you about: you had a piece in the New York Times last Sunday, and the title was "Don't Call Me a Genius." You, of course, are the winner of what is usually called, in fact, we just called it in introducing you, a MacArthur Genius Grant. Why don't you want people to use that word to describe you? Well, first of all, let me just say, I didn't write that title. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a, it's a, the whole piece is actually about the, 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 the problems with genius, not that I don't want to be called a genius. <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's about this idea that when we say genius nowadays, in uh, our society, we're typically talking about some individual of remarkable talent or achievement. And it's, in my case, you know, it's related to the label that's often put upon someone like me, a writer from a minority or marginalized community. Uh, I have been called a voice for the voiceless. Yeah. Many writers like me have been called that. And a voice for the voiceless is just this kind of thing that we trot out whenever someone is uh, writing about an experience we don't know anything about. And that, that's meant to be a compliment, you know, that this person is exceptional. And that's why it's dangerous. My work is made possible by the, you know, all these social and political struggles by Asian Americans, by African Americans, by so, by so many other people that have created the space for someone like me not to be persecuted or discriminated against simply by the fact of my own existence. And I come out of an Asian American community, Vietnamese American community, whose struggles, again, have made it possible for me to do the work that I do. And I don't think of myself as a voice for them who are voiceless people, because they're actually all really, really loud. <laughs> I think that my work is aligned both with literature, but also with these social and political movements, whose goal is, yes, to get more voices out there, but really to transform the conditions of our society so that we don't have voiceless people anymore. And that's a really long-term struggle that we're engaged in. The Long-Term Struggle. The book is The Displaced, Refugee Writers on Refugee Lives. It's edited by Viet Nguyen. Viet, thanks for talking with us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks so much, John. Finally, what if Muhammad Ali had received a draft deferment? That's the subject of this week's episode of Dave Zirin's Edge of Sports podcast. It's our sister podcast at The Nation. This week, Dave talks about the greatest what-ifs in sports history. 
on the Edge of Sports podcast, where sports and politics collide. New episodes every week at thenation.com slash edge of sports. Start Making Sense, the Nation podcast is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.